<laughs> Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. Welcome to live podcasting with T.G. Wolf and Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music, and some episodes are more original than others. Some episodes will have stories that are my own, and others are classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no takes, no fakes, no retakes. No matter how many dogs bark, no matter how many times my voice cracks, it's all just good fun. This is season three, Enter the Detective. This season contains adaptations of the first cases for detectives. Some will be characters from book, screen, and stage. Others will be lesser known, but with great stories that we hope you give a try. Episode 5 is about not letting bygones be bygones. This is Holmes and A Study in Scarlet, an adaptation of A Study in Scarlet by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, Jack, we finally made it to the detective who seems like he started it all, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. It sure does, so... Is it? Is it my turn? <laughs> Our turn? Yes. My turn? Okay. Okay. So, say you decided to Google Sherlock Holmes. Well, you would find uh, more than the wiki page. I had a stroke. Well, you would find more than the Wikipedia page dedicated to the fictional detective. Here's some of the most unexpected. In a Castle of Chaos blog post, One of the seven things you never knew about Holmes is a reference to a 1999 book that attempted to put a number on Holmes' IQ. The average IQ is 100. Einstein's was estimated to be around 160. Radford, the author of the book, was a crazy, with a crazy long title, what? English? John Radford, author of a book with a crazy long title, see the show notes, put Holmes at 190. Other uh, studies have lowered that rating. I mean, that's like crazy. So, Jack, remember that I asked you the question of could you write somebody smarter than you? I totally remember that conversation. Well, this was what sparked it. So how could Conan Doyle, obviously a brilliant man, but, you know, let's say he was brighter than average, maybe like 140 or whatever. Could you really write a character like that much higher than you on the IQ scale? Yes. Magic. (laughs) in my opinion that would be the only way magic (laughs) well you could also write everyone around you to have such a lower iq so like oh his iq is 100 but in reality his iq is like 80 that way even though holmes was in the like book technically it was only like 160 it'd be like oh it's actually 190 because compare it to to jerry over there who's supposed to be at 100 He's definitely 90 points above him, even though Jerry's not at 100. He's actually written at 80, but the book references him to be 100, you know? Have you ever heard the term that figures lie and liars figure? I'm correct. I don't know <laughs> what that means, but I'm right. Okay, just keep going. <laughs> Rob Hunter of Slashfilm.com set out to write 110 adaptations, to watch 110 adaptations and original adventures, uh, made since movies were a thing. He made it through 70. 
Yes, the man watched 70 Sherlock Holmes movies. Sorry, I, what, okay. So he watched 110 Sherlock Holmes movies, not just random original adventures. He watched movies, TV shows. Well, yeah. yeah, but out of the 110, all of them were Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Yeah, that, and that he only good. made it through 70. He didn't get all t- 100. He was 40 away. I feel like once you're at 70, just go all the way, man. <laughs> I'm going to give you the worst three and the best three. Check the show notes for a link to Hunter's blog, which has the links to the film. Number 70, Sherlock Holmes, 2011. Of course, it's the recent one. Hunter shares a secret with the creators. Just because you have a digit camera, digital camera, doesn't mean you should make a full-length movie with it. A digit camera? Do you have a number seven? <laughs> anyway, um, I take it to mean that camera work is bad. What? Like my grandma could do better. Though. I'm pretty sure grandma could do better. Ah, yes. Number <clears throat> 68 plus one. Sherlock Holmes and the Shadow Witchers. Watchers. The Shadow Watchers. I'm going to make something called The Shadow Witchers now. <laughs> the Shadow Watchers, also in 2011. Man, 2011 was not a good year. Hunter says that this uh, is really number 69.99, only saved from the bottom of having a storyline, although not a good one. Number 68, The Hound of Bakersville. Uh, Baskerville. Baskervillas, my boss. Uh, this was a bad comedy. Not the kind of comedy where it's so bad. It's good, but the kind that you regret the last hour and a half of your life. Now for the good one. Numero trois, 1948. Why are all the good ones, like, older than my dad? Based on Doyle's story, Hunter liked the train setting, which uh, feels very Agatha Christie, but drops Sherlock in the middle of it. Number two, The Case Book of Sherlock Holmes, The Master of Blackmailer, 1992, which is a TV series, I think. Another based on a Doyle mystery, Hunter is a fan of the actor Jeremy Brett, who plays Holmes over 40 times. Jesus. Number one, Murder by Decree, 1979. An original storyline, not one of Doyle's. Hunter thought it was all about the casting, especially Christopher Plummer, the famous Canadian actor, as Sherlock. In the case, Sherlock investigated the Jack the Ripper murders. The first Sherlock mystery was published in uh, 1887, and Jack the Ripper was killing in Whitechapel in 88. The movie got an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's pretty cool. I thought we should watch some of those really horrible ones. Kind of curious. But, like, I... You know the movie called The Room? I know of it. It's It's horror, right? The Room? Yeah. No. It's... I don't know what it's supposed to be. It's drama. But it is labeled as, like, one of the worst movies of all time. And because of it, it's, like, a cult classic. And it's, like, everyone loves it. And I've seen it. And it's amazing. Like, amazingly bad. Amaz- amazingly bad. Like it makes you laugh. It's it, it's good, but it's not. You know. I'm I'm definitely intrigued. This doesn't sound like it's that. This sounds like it's dear God. I'm going to be bored for an hour and a half. I don't know. The one where you said people just because you have a digital camera doesn't mean you should make a full length movie. I'm just like imagining like somebody sitting in a room almost like we are, but like, hey, Jack, let's make a movie. And you put your digital camera on video and you're like, go. <laughs> like That's not a good idea. Maybe not. Maybe not. But, you know, they had good intentions. All righty then. Oh, so let's see. So. Sherlock Holmes was first published, like Jack said, in November of 1887, and he came out in an annual magazine called Beaton's Christmas Annual. 
Now there's so much that you know about Holmes that there's really not a whole lot to say. Um, I had some interesting takes on Watson that if you want to check out my newsletter or my uh, website, you'll see that on there. Watson is way more interesting a character than I think he's ever been made out to be. But let's go right into the story because this is Sherlock Holmes. So while Jack resets his mic and his fingers are warming up, I'll touch on why we're doing adaptations. Two reasons. One is that the language in the 1800s is hard, um, especially to the way we're used to hearing stories. And the second is that they're too long for a podcast format. We would have to do these over an entire season. Um, so by condensing them, we're preserving the story that created the mystery genre, but making it up to date. Character names are in the show notes. And with that, Jack, we are ready for Holmes and a study in Scarlet. Chapter 1, 11 shillings and sixpence a day. My name is Dr. John Watson. There are times when I have to remind myself who I am. Why should I have to do such a thing? Because the man I am today is one I don't recognize. In 1878, I was the picture of a modern man, young, fit, ideologic. I had just graduated with my degree in medicine from the University of London and continued without hesitation to the additional coursework needed to become a surgeon in the army. With an air of duty and anticipation, I joined the lauded 5th Northumberland Fusiliers. This infantry regiment had roots back to 1674, and I was now their assistant surgeon. Almost. The second Afghan war had broken out before I arrived in Bombay. My regiment moved on without me and was now deep in enemy territory. This was not the introduction that I envisioned. However, I was not alone in the situation. Several officers banded together and pushed through to Kandahar, where we joined our respective regiments. War brought honors and promotions to many, but for me, it was a disaster. I was removed from my brigade and transferred to the Berkshire Regiment. Then came July 27, 1880, the Battle of Maywand. Our forces were routed. The cavalry fared better than the infantry. My own regiment counted 286 dead and 32 wounded, including myself. The bullet, a singular slug of lead, shattered my shoulder and grazed my subclavian artery. Death looked my way. It was only through actions of my orderly that I'm here to write down this journal. He put me across a pack horse and took us across British lines. Living proved to be the harder path. I was healing. My shoulder would never be as operational as it once was. I learned to be grateful that my hand was functional. The injury to the artery took all my energy to heal. When, finally, my strength had grown to where I could walk around the hospital ward and venture onto the veranda, I was struck down again. This time it wasn't a bullet, but a strain of a tiny little bug called salmonella. Enteric fever, or typhoid fever if you prefer, took me right back to death's door. For months, my life hung in the balance. I do not remember most of the time between sitting on the veranda and the day the medical board determined I should return to England. Within a month, I stepped foot on British soil. My health, my career, and indeed my life were ruined. I had a permanent income of 11 shillings and a sixpence a day. 
I knew no one in England. I wandered a bit, landing in London, which seemed a magnet for lost souls such as I. I lived in a hotel. It was a meaningless, painful, exhausting existence that I eased by spending money as quickly as I could. Too soon, reality caught up to me, and I had to either find other accommodations or leave London to find other accommodations. The same day reality had slapped me and red in my cheek, a familiar face presented itself at a local bar. Stamford had once worked under me and was now at a local hospital. We weren't particularly friends back in the day, but now it was like we were long-lost brothers. Over a pint, we shared our woes. When he heard of my housing plight, he shared that he knew a fellow looking for a good man to share expenses. I jumped at the opportunity life presented, but Stanford was hesitant to make the introductions. It was only after an extended examination of who and why and a bribery of lunch that Stanford consented to introduce me to a fellow working at a chemical laboratory named Sherlock Holmes. My first impression of Holmes was one of chaos and disorder. The laboratory was a lofty chamber with the little litter of countless bottles scattered on every surface. A solitary figure hunched his lanky body over a table. I thought him unaware of our entrance, but before Stamford said a word, Holmes verbally leapt at us. At last, he said, triumph in his voice, I have isolated a compound that will react with human blood. Have a look. And then he cut himself. Correction, he cut himself again. Both hands were covered in bandages. He allowed a few droplets to fall into a large beaker filled with water. The droplets did nothing to change the color of water. Then, Holmes brought a pipette to the beaker and added equally few number of drops. Instantly, the entire contents of the beaker turned a bright fuchsia. Amazing, I said. Just think, he said, what this can do for investigating a crime scene. A smear of blood, but is it from a slaughtered pig on the table or a slain man in the corner? Now we will know. Holmes, Stanford said, this is Dr. John Watson, an old friend. I mentioned your search for someone to room with. I just left the army, I said. Yes, Holmes agreed. Pakistan, was it? Your shoulder? Flabbergasted, I looked to Stamford, for he must have told Holmes about me. His shrug said he didn't. Correct, I said, on both counts, with a measure of typhoid on top. My health is far from tip-top. Have no worries about me being a noisy roommate. He said, do you object to the smell of strong tobacco? No, I said, I enjoy a pipe myself. I generally have chemicals about and often do experiments, he said. What else are my sins? I sometimes sink into a sulk for days. When it happens, just ignore me. I'll come around. What about you? I laughed for the first time in days. I keep a bullpup, and I have a distinct distaste for arguments. My nerves can't take it. I get up at all sorts of ungodly hours, and I am extremely lazy. Holmes was nodding, taking in my confession in stride. Does the violin contribute to your nerves? It depends on the player, I said. Too true, he said. We shall get along splendidly. Let's meet tomorrow at noon and inspect the rooms. That's fine, I said. What is the address? 221B Baker Street. Is that that famous Baker Street place? It is Isn't that it? famous Baker Street place. Pretty, pretty, pretty cool. All right, bye. Chapter 2. Not a butcher, a baker, nor a candlestick maker. Life at 221B Baker Street. Sweet. 
<laughs> Street, quickly fell into a routine. Holmes and I each had a bedroom, and we shared a common room. The furnishings were comfortable, much like our landlady. I had little to contribute to our home. My possessions were limited to what fit into my trunk and my pup. Holmes, on the other hand, had a never-ending supply of music, books, tools, gizmos, gadgets, and other things I had no name for. Within a few days, we were settled and on with our lives. Sleep had become elusive for me. Pain often woke me too soon after I closed my eyes. My dog was used to these unscheduled events and used the opportunity to press me into service. If the weather was amenable, we would walk through the quiet streets. I can tolerate heat, but wet and cold made my very bones ache. After, I often returned to bed. It seemed like the one time I could sleep were those few precious hours surrounding dawn. By the time I made my way down to breakfast, Holmes invariably would be gone. We fell into this routine. Holmes was an easy man to live with. He up early and in bed by 10 and out most of the day. He accepted me as I am, never prodding physically or mentally. My life was as erratic as ever, awake, asleep, here and there, but never far. Holmes rarely had guests, and I thought him as solitary as myself, but over the weeks I found this was wrong. Occasionally, he asked me to retreat to my room as he received a guest. He was exceedingly apologetic when taking over our common space. In truth, I didn't mind. One man called several times. He was a little man, darker complected, with small, tightly spaced features that reminded me of a rat. Life held little interest for me. In fact, the only thing that captured my attention was deciphering my friend's profession. I could have asked, of course, I could, but I didn't want to. The puzzle was the first thing my mind had been curious about since those bloody days in Pakistan. It was obvious that Holmes was not a man who lived by his hands. He was not a craftsman or a journeyman. When Holmes was away, I would inspect his collections. Undoubtedly, he was a man of chemistry, of, of science, a man who made his living with his brain. He was not a doctor, at least not of people. Those who came to see him were women and men, young and old, every class of person who claimed London as their home. None, though, appeared sickly. He was clearly comfortable in a laboratory. Perhaps he was an inventor. Frequently, we'd come together in the evenings. Holmes was easy to engage in conversation. I found his knowledge base polarized, though, peculiar. He knew nothing of philosophy or proper literature. He knew all about sensational literature and could list crimes to the location, date, and horrific detail. Astronomy wasn't worth his time. His knowledge of law was sound, but of politics was pathetic. His understanding of botany was deep when it came to belladonna, opium, and poisons in general. He was an empty vessel, though, on practical gardening. Geology was similarly scant, except for being able to distinguish between types of soil and knowing where around London to find each. With anatomy, what he knew was accurate, but outweighed by what he didn't know. At chemistry, he was, obviously, a master. He played the violin well. He soothed many a night by playing my request, some very difficult. More often, he sat with the instrument on his lap and plucked at it. Sometimes it was pleasant, but often not. The speed and tone seemed to reflect the inner workings of his mind. It was at these times I did my best to tolerate it. Before I could reach the point of putting an end to it, Holmes would come out of his thoughts, realize the strain he caused, and play a favorite piece of mine to ease me. 
Through our conversations, I learned him to be an accomplished at billiards, in boxing, and fencing. Perhaps he'd been a professor or a schoolmaster and was now a private tutor. One morning, I woke early. Lying awake did nothing to ease my discomfort, so I rose and descended to breakfast. The landlady did not have my breakfast waiting, as she usually did, and I'll admit to ringing the bell with an unjustified annoyance. I sat with Holmes, picking up the newspaper for a distraction. That is exactly what I found. Did you see this ridiculous article? I asked Holmes. The writer claimed that from a few drops of water, a person can tell whether it came from the Atlantic or the Mediterranean, even if having never seen either. Have you heard of such a thing? I have, Holmes said. I wrote the article. I have experienced great success solving the apparently inexplicable using those same techniques. You wrote this? Solving the inexplicable? For whom? My questions were indicative of a mind in flux. For clients, my good Watson. As a private detective, my services are for sale to anyone with sufficient coy. He smiled widely. And the occasional Scotland Yard inspector. Scotland Yard comes to you for advice? I laughed. I do apologize, Holmes, but that seems hard to believe. The newspapers often laud the temerity of the force. You can't trust everything you read, he said. There are two inspectors who earn their pay, Lestrade and Gregson. They are sharp-witted and energetic, but too conventional to see the truth before them. After breakfast, we returned to our common room where Holmes showed me a book he kept of newspaper clippings on his cases. He stood in our bay window, looking down on Baker Street as I flipped through the pages. This is most impressive, Holmes. The Duke's nephew confessed to stealing the rubies? He had just returned from London, Holmes explained, where he sold the gems to a pawn shop. It had rained and his shoes were caked with the soil that I knew to come from the West End. He had lightened his pockets at a house of ill repute. He carried the proof upon his throat. The jewels were recovered and the broker fingered the nephew. When faced with the facts, he could do nothing else. It seems we're about to have a guest. A knock came at our door. Come in, Holmes said. The man who walked in carried an air of authority and a letter. Holmes read it and dismissed the man without a response. Pedestrian, he said, and flung the letter at me for my inspection. This is terrible, I said. Undoubtedly, Holmes said calmly. Would you read it out loud? Chapter 3 Enoch J. Drubber of Cleveland, Ohio I held the letter toward the light of the window. My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, there has been a bad business during the night at 3 Lauriston Gardens, off of Brixton Road. Our man on the beat saw a light there about 2 in the morning, and as the house was an empty one, suspected that something was amiss. He found the door open, and in the front room, which is bare of furniture, discovered the body of a gentleman, well-dressed, and having cards in his pocket bearing the name of Enoch J. Drebber, Cleveland, Ohio, USA. There has been no robbery, nor is there any evidence as to how this man met his death. There are marks of blood in the room, but there is no wound upon his person. We are at a loss as to how he came into the empty house. Indeed, the whole affair is a puzzler. If you can come around to the house any time before 12, you will find me there. I have left everything in status quo until I hear from you. 
If you are unable to come, I shall give you fuller details, and would esteem it a great kindness if you would favor me with your opinion. Yours faithfully, Tobias Gregson. I looked up at Holmes as I finished the letter. Surely there is not a minute to lose. Shall I order a cab for you? Holmes, for his part, was undisturbed, unimpressed, and unmotivated. The graphic letter had the same effect as lukewarm tea. I'm not sure I shall go. You call yourself lazy, Watson, but indeed it is I that am inclined to lie about on our comfortable couch. Aside from the occasional malaise, Holmes may be the least lazy person I have ever met. He, and especially his mind, were constantly in motion. It seems to be just the type of puzzle you were espousing about, I said. True, he said, but what does it matter to me? Gregson and Lestrade and the rest of Skylight Yard will take all the credit. Yes, they toss a few coins my way, small in comparison to that given to official personages. I held the letter out to him. This Gregson begs you to help. Yes, he gives me my due and it's to his advantage. He would never do so in the public eye. Holmes sighed heavily and then lightened into a small smile. We may as well go and have a look. I shall work it out myself and may have a laugh at them if nothing else. Get your hat. You, you wish me to come? The idea was intriguing. Holmes said nothing on the topic as we sat in the hansom, racing to Brixton Road. It was a foggy, cloudy morning. A mud-color veil hung over the houses, a reflection of the wet streets below. This was the exact British morning that made my bones ache. For the first time in a long time, I didn't care. We're nearly there, I said, aware I, aware I sounded as excited as I was. Driver, stop! Holmes shouted the order when we were about a hundred yards from the address. He alighted, and I followed. Rather than walking up to the entry as normal gentlemen would do, we skulked. Holmes walked with a focused attention on the road to the extent that I took it upon myself to ensure my friend did not fall victim to a carriage, horse, or wagon. Lauriston Gardens had four homes, two occupied and two to rent. A short brick wall about three feet tall separated the front gardens from the road. Finished with his examination of the road, Holmes led the way to the front door, where a constable admitted us. Holmes, good of you to come. When you did not send a response, I wasn't sure what to expect. Everything has been left for your inspection. The man was dressed in plain clothes with an air of authority and spoke with a London accent. He was tall, pale, with blonde hair that matched his complexion. I took this to be Gregson of Scotland Yard. Except for that, Holmes said, pointing to the myriad of footprints going in and out of the house. Gregson clenched his jaw. I was busy inside. The outside was the responsibility of Mr. Lestrade. Holmes curled one side of his mouth in an equivalent of an eye roll. With two such esteemed detectives on the case, there hardly seems room for me. Did you and Lestrade come by carriage? No, Holmes. All present came on foot. Why do you ask? This is Dr. John Watson, Holmes said, not answering his question. Undoubtedly, you've heard of him. Not sure of Holmes's game, I didn't disavow his inference of my fame, but offered my hand. A pleasure, I said, despite the circumstances. Inspector Tobias Gregson, Scotland Yard, said the man with the firm shake, and then he turned to Holmes. There's not a mark on him. It's a puzzler, to be sure. A dead man lying in the middle of an empty room, and not a pistol or blade to be found. This way. 
Gregson led the way deeper into the house, into the room that would serve residents as a dining room. It was the proper size to comfortably host a family, although it looked bigger for the lack of furnishing. Opposite the wide entry was an ornate fireplace with the mantle of imitation marble. It held only dust and a thick stub of a candle. The wallpaper was assaulting to the senses. In places, it had peeled off the wall and hung like dead weight, revealing the plaster beneath it. One window allowed light to filter in. It was as filthy as the rest of the room, casting the scene in a hazy yellow film. Holmes squatted to inspect the body. I mirrored him, curious what my own skills would tell me about the manner of death. The man was in his mid-forties, average size, with curling black hair and short beard. He was well-dressed in light-colored trousers, a waistcoat, and a topcoat. His collar and cuffs were immaculately white. A well-attended top hat sat neatly beside him, as though ready for him to pick up on his way out. He was contorted, as if he died in great pain. His hands were in tight fists, legs drawn up, and his face frozen in a grimace. As Gregson had said, there was no obvious mark on him, not even a scrape or a bruise. It was as if the man voluntarily walked into the center of the room, was seized by crippling pain, and dropped dead. Holmes left no stone unturned, as it were. His nimble figures danced over the body as they did the violin. Nothing escaped his inspection. He seemed to have no bounds, sniffing the dead man's lips and inspecting the sole of his boots. When he rose, he looked to Gregson. You can take him away. There's nothing more to be learned. A shorter, darker man who'd come to Baker Street now leaned against the doorway. Holmes, he said, and you must be Mr. Watson. Dr. Watson, I corrected. Inspector Lestrade, I presume? Indeed. Lestrade was interrupted by the soft chiming of metal on hardwood. Lestrade picked it up and looked stunned. A woman's been here. She's lost her wedding ring. The small, plain circle of gold belonged on a slender hand. As if things weren't complicated enough, Gregson said. Chapter 4. Rachel The staircase stood in as a table, holding the property of the deceased. Gregson displayed the collection to Holmes as a merchant would his wares. Enoch J. Drebber was a man of some wealth. His effects included a gold watch made by a well-known London watchmaker, a very heavy and solid gold Albert chain, a gold ring with a Masonic emblem, and a gold dog pin, bulldog pin with rubies as eyes. His card case was Russian leather. He did not have a wallet, but loose coins totaling over seven pounds. He carried a pocket edition of a book with the name Joseph Strangerson inside. Finally, he carried two letters, one addressed to himself, the other to Strangerson. Gregson and Lestrade had determined that Drubber and Strangerson were with a steamship company and set to return to New York soon. The mail had been sent to the American Exchange with instructions to hold until called for. They had dispatched a man to the exchange and were waiting his return. That is everything, Gregson announced. You see, Mr. Gregson, Lestrade called out, I have made a discovery. Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, if you will return to the dining room. We three paraded back down the hall, joining a triumphant-looking Lestrade. Stand here, he said, and when we had, he struck a match and brought it near to the wall. On a patch of drywall where the wallpaper had given up hope of sticking, letters emerged. R. A. 
C H E. You see, Lestrade said, someone was writing a woman's name, Rachel, and was interrupted. It was overlooked because it's in the darkest corner of the room. But with the candle on the mantle lit, this would be one of the brightest. When we find this woman, we will find the truth of what happened last night. Holmes placed himself next to the wall, looking at the writing at an angle rather than straight on. The letters were very nearly at his eye level. Have you sent a telegram to Cleveland, Ohio, Gregson? Yes, he said. The locals will inform Drubber's next of kin. We ask for any information that might be relevant. But you put no specific questions to them? Holmes seemed not to listen to the answer as he inspected the room as thoroughly as he had the road and the body. His face was composed throughout. Nothing seemed to shock or impress him. I am finished here. Who is first on the scene? I'd like to talk to him. Gregson and Lestrade led the way to the front foyer, where the light was brighter and less yellow. Lestrade offered the name of Constable John Rance as the man in question and offered his address. Has this one deviled you too then, Holmes? There remain questions to be asked and answered, he said, but I will tell you this. Enoch Drubber was murdered. His killer was a man over six foot tall, strong, and in his prime. The fingernails on his right hand were noticeably long. The two men arrived in a four-wheeled carriage drawn by a single horse with one new shoe on his right foreleg. Gregson and Lestrade stared at each other. Lestrade stepped closer to my friend. If he was murdered, how did he die? He was poisoned, Holmes said. One other item, Reich is German for revenge. The word is written in blood, and since the victim isn't bleeding, the killer was. And the killer was not German. Chapter 5. Missed him by that much. We departed Lauriston Gardens, but did not head home to Baker Street. It was a proper time of day now, and the streets were busy about with the work that kept London moving. With my lack of sleep and starting out an ungodly time, I should have been exhausted. My body was keeping up with my mind, though, fully vested in the method of Mr. Sherlock Holmes and his study in Scarlet. Holmes stopped first to send a telegram. It went to the industrial city of Cleveland, Ohio, regarding Drubber. As to what was in it, Holmes only said that Gregson asked the wrong question. Next, we hailed a cab to take us to the address Lestrade provided. I asked Holmes about the methods I witnessed, and he most willingly explained what he would not say in front of the inspectors. He knew the killer's height from the writing on the wall. In that situation, no, most people write at their own eye height. Reich is a German word for revenge, but the character for the letter A was not written in the style that is most common in that country. In Holmes' mind, it was a ruse to put the police off the real scent. This is fascinating, Holmes, I said genuinely. You have made murder detection into as near a science. Holmes smiled. I shan't tell you anymore. If I show you all my secrets, you'll come to the conclusion that I'm a very boring person after all. Never, I said, adjusting in my seat, but grateful for the discomfort that woke me early, else I would have missed out on this remarkable day. Constable John Rance had been asleep and was none too happy to be woken. Holmes smoothed his ruffled feathers with half a sovereign and began the interview. There was nothing new in the account until Rance explained how he left the house to get a fellow constable and, not finding one, returned to the house. 
After he discovered the body, he ran out to the garden and sounded his whistle for help. A drunk had come to hang on the garden gate, singing at the top of his lungs. He was so sauced, Rand said, he couldn't stand, let alone help. It took two of us to get him moving along. What did he look like, Holmes said. Tall man, same as you, Rand said. He had a red face and was wearing a brown overcoat. Did he carry a whip? Holmes asked excitedly. No, he didn't carry anything at all, Rand said. Did you see a cab nearby or hear one shortly after? No, he said, but we were back in the house by then. Holmes rose, took his hat, and flipped Rance another half-sovereign. I'm afraid you shall never rise in the ranks, Rance. The man you had in your hands was the one who has the key to what happened in that house. Once out the door, Holmes was obviously annoyed. The blundering fool. He could have had him. I seated myself back in the cab and waited for him to settle. Why would he come back? That is a horribly large risk to take, I said. It is, Holmes agreed which means he came back for something very valuable, at least to him. What, I asked. The ring, Holmes said. Then he became more thoughtful. We can use it as bait. I'll have him, Watson. I'll give you two to one odds. I saw the gleam in his eyes and hoped they never looked at me in such a way. No bet, sir. Chapter 6. Holmes Catches a Fish. Almost. We're going to have a guest this evening, Holmes said after dinner the next night. Do you still have your service pistol? I do, I said, my nerves now on alert. Who are we expecting and why might we shoot him? Very likely it will be our killer, Holmes said. I placed a lost and found advertisement. Found one gold wed wedding ring in the vicinity of Baxter Street. Can be claimed at 221B Baker Street. I see, I said. You think the ring meant that much to our suspect? Holmes shrugged. It meant enough that he returned to the scene and faced three constables without running off. He keeps his head about him. Remember that. I fetched my pistol from my bedroom and began cleaning it. I hadn't had cause to even think about it since arriving at the hospital in India. The months of inattention were rubbed away. I wished for a moment it was as easy to recover from injuries and from memories. Holmes suddenly stood, his eyes bright. Take a position by the door. Do not reveal your weapon until I give you the signal. Signal, I asked, going to the spot. What signal? A knock came upon our door. Holmes threw himself back into his chair, striking a pose of complete boredom. Enter. The door opened and in walked a little old lady. She was a few inches shorter than me. Her gray hair was neatly bound and her dress covered her neck to toes. Good day, she said. My name is Edna Perkins. I came about an advertisement for a wedding ring. It belongs to my daughter, I believe. Holmes, to my surprise, produced a simple ring. If you can identify it, he said, I'll be happy to return it. The woman's eyes widened as she took the ring. Wrinkles radiated from the corner of her eyes like rays of sunshine. Oh, yes, she said. This is it. She will be so relieved. She hasn't told her husband that she's lost it, you see. He isn't an understanding man. Holmes gave a small bow. Then I am indeed glad we found it. How did she come to lose it? 
Oh, she was out in the rain last evening, coming home from a church sewing circle. The wind tore at her hat and her hair and her umbrella. She came to me this morning, distraught as she couldn't find the ring. She clutched the ring to her chest. Had I not known the truth of the ring, I would have believed her. Holmes asked enough questions to learn the address of the woman and her daughter. There was more talk about the weather, and then we bade the woman good night. I closed the door behind her, ready to interrogate Holmes on his method, only to find him swirling his greatcoat around his shoulders. I shan't be late, he said, donning his hat and running out the door. Well, I waited, alternating between reading and watching out the window. Nine o'clock, the maid climbed the stairs to her chamber. Ten o'clock, the landlady did the same. It was nearly eleven when I heard the latch key in the door. I rose to greet a very dejected Sherlock Holmes. What happened? I lost her, he said begrudgingly. I am grateful word of this will never reach the ears of Lestrade or Gregson. I would never hear the end of it. Too bad, Watson. There is no more damage to be done today. Chapter 7. An Arrest and Two Deaths I rose early to join Holmes for breakfast, excited to see what the new day would bring. Holmes had recovered from his disappointment the night before and was expounding theories on the woman and our killer. I often deploy a team of street boys, he said. Most useful they are. They can go anywhere, hear anything. Most people pretend they don't exist. I'll put them on the case. Shortly after the meeting with the most begraggled group of boys I've ever seen, Inspector Gregson paid a visit. He was in a triumphant mood. I have arrested our killer, he announced. Holmes waved his hand, inviting Gregson to sit. Indeed, he said, tell us. It started with the top hat, Gregson said, taking the corner of the couch but still sitting forward, his eyes animated. I made note of the haberdashery and paid a visit to see if they were called selling a hat of that style and size. They did, which led me to the boarding house where Mr. Drubber was staying. The night he was murdered, he was supposed to leave London on the 9.15 train. He missed it and returned to the rooming house, where he was not well received. It seems the landlady, Mrs. Carpenter, has a lovely daughter, and Drubber crossed the line. The daughter told her older brother, an army lieutenant, who chased Drubber from the house. Excellent, Holmes said. Now, the brother claims he lost Drubber, and then he went to his club, Gregson said, but I think he followed him. Lieutenant Carpenter carried a heavy walking stick that was more of a cudgel. He hit Drubber, not in the head, but somewhere that wouldn't leave a mark. Then he dragged Drubber into the empty house and rode on the wall to turn us onto a false trail. As he came to the end of his tail, Lestrade entered, looking like he'd been dragged through London behind a carriage. Gentlemen, he said, standing in the middle of the room, fiddling with uncomfortably with his hat. This is the most extraordinary case. You think so, Lestrade? Gregson said like a child about to explode with a secret. Tell me, did you find the secretary, Strangerson? Lestrade nodded. He's dead. Knowing the two men, Drubler and Strangerson, were traveling together, I asked myself what one would do if separated from the other. It seemed to me they would have had an arrangement to meet at a place. I've been checking hotels and public houses with no luck until this morning. Joseph Strangerson was staying at a small hotel. The front desk man showed me to the room, presuming to be the man Strangerson was waiting for. As we approached the door, I noticed a blood trail soaking the carpeting. 
We broke in and Strangerson lay curled up against the wall under an open window. The manner of his death was not a mystery. He was stabbed in his left side. The killer took his time in the room. He washed his hands on the knife. He came and went by a window. A boy saw him, thought he was a workman. What did you find in the room with him? Holmes asked. The word Raish was written above him. I found a telegram from Cleveland that said E.H. was in Europe. There was a wallet with over 80 pounds, a novel sat on the bed, his pipe on the table, and a small tin of pills on the windowsill. The last link, Holmes cried out. Inspector, could you bring me a sample of the pills? I can do better than a sample, Lestrade said, taking the pill box from his inside coat pocket. Doctor, Holmes said, will you fetch the sickly terrier the landlady begged you to put down yesterday? I hurried to the lower level and gently carried the poor creature back to the apartment. Holmes had prepared a small dish with milk. I set the dog next to it and he willingly lapped it up. The four of us watched it expectantly. Nothing happened. Drat, Holmes said. Of course, where's the sport otherwise? He took a pill from the tin, cut it in half, crushed it and mixed it with the milk. The dog again drank willingly. After just a lap or two, it collapsed shivered with a convulsion, and was dead. Lestrade, Gregson, and I were on our feet, speaking over and above each other at Holmes for the meaning of all of this. With a wry smile on his face, he spoke calmly. There will be no more murders. We have time to collect this killer. Lestrade slapped his hat against his leg. You know his name, Holmes? I do, Holmes said, but it will take more than a name to catch him. All right, this is the part of the story where we pause to give you a chance to catch a killer. But before we do, I want to point you to one of my favorite podcasts, The Other Stories. Before there was order and logic of mysteries, there was the chaos and thrill of horror. The Other Stories carries on this tradition with bite-sized tales of the macabre, fantastic, and unexplainable. It's one of my go-to websites, or webcasts, (laughs) podcasts. Subscribe wherever you find your podcast and make it the next show you listen to. All right, Jack. So at this point, we know everything Watson knows, which is not everything Holmes knows. As Holmes says, he can't tell us everything or we wouldn't be impressed by him anymore. We don't know enough to put a name to the killer, but we know enough to put a job or a role. So here here are suspects in the order they appeared in the story. A constable the cab driver, the old woman's daughter, the old woman's son-in-law, one of the street boys, the top hat salesman, and the hotel front desk clerk. My money's on the old woman. (laughs) You like the old woman? Yeah. Um, Okay. Let's do something with the two children. Yeah. That children... But, you know, the mm-hmm. thing, people, ring people. So are you surprised that Holmes just killed a dog? I mean, it was a mangy dog, wasn't it? They, I think Doyle went to an extreme to say that this dog was a day from dead. Because, yeah, I was like, he did what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dog died. Sad. But, uh. You can't do that in mysteries these days. You can't, can't kill dogs. Well, he did it in such a way that just made, like, you'd be like, oh, he just killed a dog. Oh, oh, okay. It wasn't like, oh, a dog died. It was, oh, it's okay. It's done. All right. <laughs> if you, our dear listeners, are ready to take on one of my mysteries, 
check out Widow's Run. The hit and run that took her husband's life was no accident. And now it's up to Diamond. Her Widow's Run unearths a plethora of suspects. Small-time crook, a mule-loving rancher, a lady-in-waiting, a Russian bookseller, and a soon-to-be priest. Follow the stink greed leaves in its wake to reveal big lies and ugly truths. Murder is filthy business. Good thing Diamond likes to play dirty. All the clues are there. Can you find the killer before Diamond? Available in paperback and ebook from your favorite bookseller, or you can listen to it for free on Mysteries to Die For, Season 1. All right, Jack, let's do our favorite part, the big reveal. Our door opened and the head of Home Street Urgent entered. The cab is here like you wanted. Excellent, Wiggins, Holmes said. Ask the driver to come up and to help me with my boxes. With the boy out, Holmes went to his desk and withdrew a set of handcuffs. He held them out to Lestrade. Look at the action on these. You should consider replacing yours. Mine work just fine, Lestrade said. I just need the hands to put them on. In short order, the cab driver gave a quick knock at the door. Right here, Holmes said. If you wouldn't mind holding this buckle down. The driver was disgruntled but obliged. He bent over, pressed a hand to the box, and Holmes slapped the cuff on his wrist. May I introduce Mr. Jefferson Hope, the murderer of Enoch Drubber and Joseph Strangerton. For seconds that felt like minutes, we all stared at each other. Then Hope let out a roar, threw himself out of Holmes' grip, and made for the window. Holmes, Lestrade, and Gregson sprang upon him, taking him down like hounds on a fox. The man fought like a champion, only relenting when Lestrade got him by the neckcloth and half strangled him. After the show of strength, the man seemed to have no animosity towards us. I'll cooperate if you let me up, he said in an American accent. I'm not as light to carry as I was. The parade down to his cab was orderly. Lestrade jumped into the driver's seat. Holmes and Gregson climbed in with hope. Come along, doctor. You've vested in this, too. You'll hang for this, Gregson said gravely. Not likely, Hope said calmly. You're a doctor? Put your hand here. I placed my hand on his chest. What I felt was not normal. You have an aortic aneurysm. You're lucky you didn't die fighting the way you did. I looked at Gregson. His life is in imminent danger. Immediate and irreversible, Hope corrected. The result of a hard life. He smiled softly. It's all right. I'm ready to go. Lucy has waited long enough. Lucy, Gregson asked. Who is she? She was supposed to be my wife. Lucy Furrier accepted my proposal, and her father gave me his blessing. Rather than marrying her on the spot, I went off for a month to earn the money I wanted to give her the life she deserved. She lived in Salt Lake City, Utah, among the Mormons. She grew up with them. They claimed her, but she wanted me. While I was gone, the religious leaders pressured her father to marry her off to Drubber or Strangerson. Both had multiple wives, as is the Mormon way, and they both wanted Lucy. He sent word to me, and we tried to make an escape, but we waited too long. They killed her father, forced Lucy to marry Drubber, and he took all of her father's lands and money. By the time I got back, she had died, wasted away of her broken heart. Her husband cared only about her money. It was the other women, the wives who mourned her. I walked right into that room through a group of the terrified women and gave Lucy her last kiss. 
I took the ring off her finger and told them she would not be buried with it. Ring or no ring, vow or no vow, Lucy was mine. I swore I would get revenge. I chased Drubber and Strangerson from Salt Lake City to Cleveland, across the Atlantic, through Russia to London. It wasn't easy. They were rich and I wasn't. I had to work my way place to place. Gregson nodded, taking notes. How did you come across Drubber? Hope smiled. He leapt into my cab. I had followed Drubber and Strangerson to the train station. They missed the train to Liverpool and had two hours to the next. Drubber said he had some private business and left Strangerson at the station. He took a cab. I followed in mine. I was surprised when we ended back up at the rooming house. I sat at the corner, wondering what he was up to. Not long after, amid the rain, he was chased out of the door by a younger man. He looked rally to wallop Drubber. Somehow Drubber got away. He leapt into my cab and told me to drive. He told me to take him to a private hotel. I didn't. I had a plan and I put it into action. I took him to the house. I told him to who I was and reminded him of the woman he drove to her death. He denied any wrongdoing. Strangerson had killed her father, not him, and Lucy died of her own accord, not his. My head was about to explode. I was so furious with them. My nose began bleeding, letting out the pressure. I held out two pills, one harmless, one deadly. I told him to take one, and I would take the other, and we would let God decide who is the righteous one. He went in willingly, I asked. He was drunk, Hope said, passed out in the carriage. He followed me into the house like a lamb. Drubber told you which hotel to go to, Holmes said. He did, but I heard Strangerson setting it up with him. It took a few days of watching to figure out what room he was in. I used a ladder to go in through the window. He was asleep. I woke him, told him who I was, told him about Drubber. I gave him the same choice. He didn't take the gamble, knowing Providence would have been on my side. He went for my throat. I defended myself. Why did you stay in London, I asked. I had to keep cabbing it enough to earn my way back to America, he said. I knew what the doctor said. I can feel it, but still, I hope to go home. The only point I would like clarification on is who your accomplice was, Holmes said, the one who claimed the ring. Jefferson Hope smiled, his face relaxed and calmed. I'll tell you my secrets, but that is where I end. Suffice it to say, a friend offered to help, and I accepted. He was convincing, wouldn't you say? Once we were alone, I questioned Holmes on several points, but the one that puzzled me the most was how he knew Jefferson Hope's name. The Cleveland police told me, he said. In my telegram, I asked about Drubber's, Drubber's marital status. They shared that he had taken a protection order out against the former lover of his deceased wife. The man's name, Jefferson Hope, matched the J.H. in the letter warning Strangerson. Two days later, we were all to appear before a magistrate, but Providence had intervened again. Mr. Jefferson Hope had been called to answer to a higher court. The aneurysm that had burst the night of his arrest, he was found the next morning with a smile on his face. Maybe he was content with the work he accomplished, or maybe he was finally with his Lucy. The affair had been covered in the paper with the facts Hope shared in the cab. The article gave Gregson and Lestrade the credit and hinting that accommodations would be coming their way. Holmes was mentioned only in that Hope was arrested in his rooms, my name was thankfully not mentioned, and that he, Holmes, 
with instruction by Gregson and Lestrade, could someday hope to rise to their ranks. What did I tell you when we started? Holmes cried with a laugh. That is the result of our study in Scarlet, to get them a testimonial. Never mind that, I said, patting my journal. I have it all. The world will know not just the facts, but the truth of it. And that, Jack, is the first case of Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Did you like it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, was not the old. I thought the whole idea of him getting poisoned was kind of obvious the second they said, yeah, Sherlock Holmes deals with chemicals, but there wasn't any stabs or bullet wounds in the body. Yeah, he was poisoned, obviously. Well, especially when the body was like contorted up in pain. I, the story actually does a decent job of not making the two Scotland Yard detectives look like idiots, like either movies do or some of the others. Yeah. But it kind of did seem like, well, if he wasn't stabbed and he wasn't shot... And there's only really one other option. And this wasn't a time where poisoning was out of the question. Right. Like this wasn't before poisoning, no. No. So does the logic work? You know, if we look at it from Jefferson Hope's point of view, the story does make sense. Um, the, the hard time with Holmes, for people like me who like solving mysteries, is Holmes never shares all the information. And so there really was very little chance to figure this one out. Um, Holmes, Christie-esque. Yeah, yeah. Holmes, you know, he makes some leaps that you just have to go with. Um, he really kind of, at least verbally, only shares one path, A to B, even if there could be different paths. And that's just what it is when you read or watch Holmes. Um, I always enjoy the stories, but yeah, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is not at the top of my list when I actually want the fun of solving a mystery. Oh, no. So that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Show support by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting us this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Everything is appreciated. Information is in the show notes and on our website, tgwolf, that's with two Fs, dot com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolfe with contribution from Jack Wolfe. A Study in Scarlet was written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and adapted by T.G. Wolfe. Music and production are by Jack Wolfe. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. All right, Jack, take us out.